0: Hello and welcome to episode number 6 of the Scottish History Podcast. My name is Owen Innes and we are going to be continuing on today the story of King Robert the Bruce that we left off from on episode number 5. I did upload a bonus episode in regards to the story of Robert the Bruce and the spider. The bonus episodes will be just periodic, they're not going to be something which is going to be happening all the time, Uh, however I do have an idea for one particular bonus episode, uh, but I'll keep that secret until that comes out, so keep an eye out for them Uh, if I am going to upload a bonus episode, it will probably be on a Wednesday, Uh, so uh, keep checking on uh, obviously every Sunday, but on Wednesdays as well So we pick up the story from where we left off and that was Robert the Bruce defeating the English at the Battle of Loudoun Hill in 1307. Just going to briefly talk about someone who I've not mentioned yet in this story and that's James Douglas, James the Black or James the Good depending on which side you were on. He got the nickname James the Black from the English because he ...would raid towns and he would leave them blackened... ...he would basically destroy everything... and uh, ...more notably by burning everything down... ...therefore leaving just a, a, a path of blackness behind him. Uh, so this is James Douglas... Um, ...under his time with Robert the Bruce... ...he proved himself to be a leader... ...and ruthless to the point of destroying his own castle... ...with an English army garrisoned inside it... ...but he destroyed his own castle... Uh, Castle Douglas, and he patrolled the borders whilst Robert the Bruce was in the north, in central Scotland and in the north, uh, trying to defeat the clans such as the MacDougals and the MacNaughtons at the Pass of Brander. James Douglas was present at the Pass of Brander, uh, but sorry to give you that idea. So, this kind of two to three year long civil war that was happening in Scotland where Robert the Bruce was having to fight against his own people, or not his own people, but the people of Scotland, in order to gain their support for then going on to fight the English. A little bit more about James Douglas, because James Douglas plays quite an integral part in especially the ending of Bruce's story. So from 1307, Robert the Bruce held his first Scottish Parliament in 1309 uh, in St Andrews. And in 1310, he tried to establish peace with England by writing a letter to King Edward, but King Edward refused. He then continued, so Bruce continued, to capture the strongholds all over Scotland with the help of James Douglas and his brother Edward. So there was an Edward Bruce. So Edward Bruce had laid siege to Stirling Castle in June of 1313, and he made a pact with Sir Philip Mowbray, who was the governor, the English governor, inside the castle. Well, Philip Mowbray was actually Scottish, but he was on the English side, and he basically made a pact with uh, Mowbray, saying that if the English failed to relieve the castle within the next 365 days the Bruce's would take over the castle, so if the English failed to relieve the castle, the Scots would regain control of Stirling Castle. And he had to do this by June the following year. Now some people originally thought that this was quite ill-advised of Edward Bruce to arrange this, however, it ended up working out pretty well. Robert Bruce spent the next year preparing for battle, preparing for the big one, I suppose you could call it. Robert Bruce and his army had stationed themselves just outside of Stirling in a place called, that we now call Bannockburn. On the 23rd of June 1314, Edward II and his army approach Stirling from the south. They need to cross over Bannockburn. Bannockburn is a stream, so it's the Bannock stream. Burn is a Scots word for stream. So they would have to cross over this quite shallow stream, but, you know, it's it's you've still got to cross over um, water with your soldiers and horses and all of your weapons and tents and things like that. So they had to cross over the water. But in the months leading up to the battle, Robert Bruce and his men had on the northern side of the the stream dug quite large pits and trenches, These pits would go roughly up to your average soldier's knee. So they were about knee deep. And there would be three sharpened wooden spikes driven into the ground in these pits. The trenches themselves, much like what you would imagine a trench to be, just a big hole in the ground, but they used the brush, the the grass and moss, etc., that they could find lying around, Um, probably branches from trees that they'd cut down to make spears and to make these spikes, etc. They used them to cover up these holes, these big trenches. So when the English approached, they were crossing over the stream, the horses, the men would trip, they would fall into these pits. Uh, Quite an ingenious idea. The idea that Bruce had was to push the advancing English to the east of Scotland, so more towards the east, because when they cross over the Bannockburn at a safe spot, this is on boggy marshland. The Scots were great at hand-to-hand combat with big spears, the shieldtrons, etc. They weren't quite so great because they didn't, uh, with cavalry and uh, archers and stuff, because they didn't really have that many. So that was Bruce's plan, and it worked. So the English army head round to the east they start crossing over a safe area of the Bannockburn. And this is where we get the first interaction of the Battle of Bannockburn. It was between a young English knight by the name of Henry de Bone and he, when he crossed over the Bannockburn, he apparently could see Robert the Bruce off in the distance commanding his army, Bruce was quite isolated he, he he was on his own he didn't have the full army around him so henry de bone screamed the king the king is mine and he starts charging towards robert bruce henry de bone is on quite a large tall warhorse whereas robert de bruce was only on quite a small pony if if you will it was it wasn't a um a great big warhorse like henry de bone's so Bruce turns when he hears Henry de Boone come towards him. Henry de Boone has a a, a, a lance uh, like what you would see, you know, these jousting competitions etc that, that you can still see in some places today. De Boone lowers his lance down pointing basically straight towards Robert the Bruce's heart and just before Henry de Boone gets to Bruce Bruce kicks his horse in the side, which makes the horse sidestep, the lance just missing Robert the Bruce by inches. At this point, Bruce was fully stood up on his stirrups with his favourite battle axe. He favoured an axe over a sword, so he has his favourite battle axe in his hand, and in the same motion of kicking the horse, the boon racing past him, Bruce has fully stood up on his stirrups and with as much might as he possibly could brings that axe crashing down in the centre of Henry de Boone's helmet. Now some reports say that that was it. However, there is a great um, account of this written by the author David R. Ross in the book, James Douglas, Um, so it's James the Good or James the Black, Douglas. It's a fantastic book and Bannockburn is very well covered within this particular book. But David R. Ross basically states that Bruce's axe went through Henry de Boone's helmet, through his skull, down through his jaw and into the upper part of his torso. Quite gruesome but as a Scot reading that You know, it it brings out a little bit of patriotism, you know, brings out a a patriotic feeling inside to imagine uh, Bruce doing so. But at the end of the day, this single-hand combat, as it was referred to, this challenge from Henry de Boone towards Robert the Bruce, Uh, Robert the Bruce was victorious. Now, you can imagine what that would have done for the army that he was about to command into battle at Bannockburn. Uh, the English, once again, outnumbered the Scots, and again reportedly, by up to almost four to one. Uh, numbers are sketchy at best. Um, when doing research for it, the The death toll, for example, on the Scots side could have been anywhere between 400 and 4,000. Know, so I'm, I'm not really going to give out very many numbers on this, but apparently the Scots army were outnumbered by roughly about uh, just less than four men to every one, Scott. So the Battle of Bannockburn begins on the 23rd of June, 1314. It's quite a historic battle in the terms of it lasted for two days. Not very many battles up until that point, certainly in medieval times, lasted that long. Most battles took place over the course of just a few hours, in some cases even minutes. But Bruce had arranged his army into three Shiltrons, uh, most of his foot soldiers anyway, into three Shiltrons. Himself was commander of one. His brother Edward Bruce, he was in charge of another. And his nephew Thomas Randolph was the commander of the third one. So as the English tried to advance on the 23rd, they could not break down these Shiltrons. And as night started to come in, the English withdrew and camped up for the night. So during the night, at some point in the uh, late night on the 23rd or very early morning on the 24th, we have Sir Alexander Seaton defecting from the English side to Bruce. Now, Alexander Seaton was a Scot who originally supported Edward II and Edward I before him. However, on this night he saw the state that the English army was in. Uh, There was a lot of infighting apparently on the night from the 23rd leading into the 24th between the English soldiers and uh, some Welsh archers and apparently uh, about 30 men or so killed within their own ranks. They they, they started actually killing each other um, because the morale was just so low and... They just I don't, I don't think very many of them wanted to be there, to be honest, especially after seeing Henry de Boone uh, slaughtered in such a way. So Alexander Seaton, during the course of the night, defects back to the Scots by basically telling Robert the Bruce, if you attack in the morning, you will win. It's as simple as that. You will defeat them. If you attack first thing in the morning, be ready, you will win this battle. So on that second morning, you can imagine the feeling in the Scots ranks, you know, they are well up for it. So they get into their Shiltron formations and they start marching forward. That's a major difference between Bruce's Shiltrons and Edward uh, William Wallace's Shiltrons. It was the fact that these ones now moved. Wallace's Shiltrons were static. They just stayed in place. You drove your stakes into the ground and you held them in place where Bruce's Sheltron's, uh, the front row, for example, you would have your spear, you'd be able to move, and when you needed to, you'd be able to put your foot on one end of the spike, put your knee behind the other, and hold onto that stake and to basically stop it from moving. Drive it ever so slightly into the ground, and then you would have another two layers behind you of spearmen as well. Um, there's some great documentaries that will show you exactly Uh, ...how these Shiltrons worked. But Robert the Bruce's sheltrons they actually were, were mobile. They could move around with whichever direction their attacker was going to come from. So they get into their formations and they start marching forward... ...for the main battle, the morning of the 24th of June, 1314. They start marching forward and just when they get to roughly where the front line was going to be... ...every single Scottish soldier got down on their knees... And they prayed. Edward II, who had now awoken and was starting to get his army ready for the battle, looked out and saw the Scots soldiers kneeling down and praying. Edward II was heard shouting across the battlefield, ''Mercy, mercy, the Scots, they pray for mercy.'' To which his commander, standing next to him, responded, ''They pray for mercy, yes, sire.'' But from God, not from you, these men will conquer or die. And when the battle commenced, these Scottish Shiltrons, this, this new Bruce system of the Shiltron, was pivotal to defeating the English army. They just could not break through. The archers, when... They tried to fire their shots. There was uh, the Scots cavalry uh, attacked them from the rear. The archers then were sent scattering around all over the place. And that was a big thing because the Battle of Falkirk was lost due to the longbowmen, the archermen of Edward I. Bruce knew this. He, He knew that he had to eliminate the English archers as quickly as he possibly could. And that's exactly what they did. They got rid of the archers first and then... The rest of it, the Shiltrons, just held incredibly strong, and the Scots started winning. You know, they started gaining some momentum, and but and once it was clear to the English that they had actually lost the battle, Edward, uh, along with near enough all of his knights, etc., they fled to Dunbar, and then Edward took a ship from Dunbar down to. The, the the town of berwick upon tweed at the end of the battle of bannockburn there were over 11000 english dead the likelihood is that the the scots army wasn't even 11000 strong so the scots killed more englishmen than were actually in their army and with such a momentous victory after the battle this allowed the scots to regularly raid Northern England, and Edward Bruce invaded Ireland uh, a little bit later. When he invaded Ireland, he became the High King of Ireland. And the main reason for taking Ireland was that Edward would, and Edward the First and Edward the Second regularly used Ireland to send troops across to then be able to attack Scotland from the west coast. So by taking over Ireland, they could not base their soldiers there. And this was the last time, uh, as soon as Edward Bruce um, invaded Ireland, took it over, this ceased to be a thing. And Edward Bruce himself was defeated and killed in Ireland in 1318 at the Battle of Dundalk. Now, from here, we're kind of going to be jumping around a little bit uh, in time. we we'll jumping jump ahead quite a few years in time. Um, just basically to try and keep the, the podcast to a, a reasonable length. Uh, so we're going to jump straight to 1320, the Declaration of our broth. possibly the most important document to ever be signed in Scotland. Incredibly powerful document. Um, there are some... Brilliant lines in it, just some brilliant statements uh, made in that particular document. But the idea was the Declaration of Arbroath signed in 1320 by Robert the Bruce and all of the Scottish nobles that supported him. This document was signed to basically declare Scotland's independence from England. This was sent across to the Pope in Rome. The problem was is that the Pope refused to accept this document and that was because the Pope, although the Scottish church had given Bruce absolution from killing John Common in the church, that that excommunication of Bruce remained in place. So again, just jumping forward a few more years, 1328, so another eight years later, uh, we have the signing of the Treaty of Northampton and Edinburgh. This was the document signed by both Edward. Well, actually, now it's Edward III. Edward II had abdicated a few years uh, earlier, so Edward III, Edward II's uh, son, they signed with, or he signed with Bruce, the Treaty of Northampton and Edinburgh, and this was where Edward III was basically saying, "England no longer has any interest in Scotland's affairs." And Scotland is now an independent country. So this, is, this document, again, was sent to the Pope in Rome. It was then declared that Scotland was its own independent state. And now Scotland was free. Bruce's excommunication, along with Scotland's excommunication, if you remember Scotland, the, the entire country was excommunicated as well, not just Bruce. Both of these excommunications were lifted and things could now move on. So, by this point in 1328, Robert the Bruce is very ill. Of what we do not know, you will read books, you will read internet stories, you will read everything uh, that basically says Bruce had leprosy. A test was done uh, a number of years ago, however, I think 2012, on parts, uh, well, on Bruce's skull and on a piece of his foot bone. Uh, that was kept after his body was found in Dunfermline. They tested it for signs of leprosy. There was none. There's absolutely no signs at all that Robert the Bruce suffered from leprosy at all. His father did, and his grandfather did. Um, This is portrayed in Braveheart, the man up in the tall tower, the man that helps Robert the Bruce betray William Wallace in the film Braveheart. That is supposed to be Robert Bruce. Robert, the Bruce's dad. It's um, So there's, there's no proof uh, whatsoever to say that Bruce had leprosy. What he died of we do not know, or what he suffered from we do not know. It could literally be anything from eczema to um, syphilis. Uh, there's so many different uh, things that it could have been, especially in those times. So Bruce is really ill and... There was one thing he'd always wanted to do. He always wanted to to go on a crusade. He wanted to fulfill a promise that he gave to the Pope and a promise that he gave to the people of Scotland that when he became king, that he was going to go on crusade, he was going to go to the Holy Land. But but by the time that he was able to leave Scotland. By the time that he thought Scotland was safe enough for him to leave without the threat of being attacked by England, he was he was too sick. So 1329, he's on his deathbed at Cardross Manor. He's 54 years old and just before he passes away, he makes one very special request. By his bedside was Sir James Douglas, James the Black Douglas. And Bruce asks Douglas to do him a favour. He says to James, When I die, I want you to remove my heart from my body and I want you to take it with you on a crusade on my behalf. And James Douglas, not just the fact that Bruce is his king, James Douglas and Bruce had become very, very close. They were very good friends. So, of course, James Douglas was going to say yes. So, James Douglas, as soon as Bruce had breathed his dying breath, checking, of course, to make sure he was definitely dead before doing so, cuts open Bruce's body, removes Bruce's heart. The heart is embalmed in lead and then placed into another lead casket. A small lead casket, mind you. And... James Douglas takes the casket he attaches a chain made from gold and he proceeds to wear this lead casket containing Bruce's heart around his neck for the next year. In 1330, in August of 1330 there was a battle over in Spain a place called Teba. James Douglas and a small Scottish army of... uh, brothers and uh, people that had fought with Bruce over many years had travelled from Scotland they found themselves in Granada heading up towards a little village called Teba so when they reached Teba they found themselves completely surrounded by Saracens and Moors they knew that they were going to have to battle but James Douglas and his entire army were completely outnumbered And completely and utterly surrounded. In that instance he knew that this was probably his dying day. He knew that he and his entire army were probably going to die. So before going into the Battle of Teba, James Douglas removes the casket from around his neck containing Bruce's heart. Facing the Saracens in the moors he swung the casket around his neck and as he released the casket and threw it into what was about to become the battlefield, he exclaimed the words Past first in fight, lead on, brave heart, as thou weren't wont to do, and Douglas will follow thee or die. He then rides after the heart as it lands on the battleground, James Douglas leaps from his horse on top of the casket and protects his king for the last time. So I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode, episode number six of the Scottish History Podcast. Once again I'm uh, absolutely thrilled by the support that I've been receiving and I want to start to encourage people to ask questions you know' we're now we're coming towards the end of the the Scottish Wars of Independence stories so please send in requests please send me any questions in which you have uh, that you would like me to talk about things that we can you know maybe try and talk about as uh, you know together with the you know I want your input as much as possible uh, on this uh, on this endeavor that, that that I'm trying to to get out there. The podcast is now available on Spotify. Uh, We've got the website, so Libsyn. So it's scotthistorypod.libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N. Uh, So scotthistorypod.libsyn.com. Again, we've got the Spotify. We're now thankfully available on Apple Podcasts as well or iTunes, whatever you call it. These are, there's there's tons of places. I'm going to try and link as many of these places together on the Facebook page. So again, please head over to the Facebook page, the Scottish History Podcast. Um, search for us on Google. You know, Send me an email, Scotthistorypod at gmail.com. Uh, I want to hear your input, folks. I've had some lovely emails. Uh, already, and some nice messages from people that I know, and and from a few people that I that I've never met before in my life. That's that's the audience uh, I want to you know reach out to the people that I know, but also I want this to go as far as possible. Uh, so keep sharing. Uh, if you get an option to rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, for example, please rate it. You can leave a review on the Facebook page etc please leave some feedback keep sharing it with your friends I've taken up too much of your time now already so once again thank you very much and I will speak to you in the next episode